Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. Please turn there with me to John chapter 11. We're going to be finishing the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So this morning we're going to look at verses 28 to 44. John chapter 11. I hope you've turned there. We're going to start in verse 28. Let's listen now to the reading of God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 28. When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and let's ask God to give us ears to hear this morning as we consider his word. Heavenly Father, help us. That is our prayer. We pray for your help. Clearly, God, your word has the power to raise the dead. And that power is received by faith. And so we pray that there would be no unbelieving hearing of the word of God today. That you would work right now by your Holy Spirit to open hearts and minds, to grant life where it's necessary, to grant hearing where it's necessary. That we would hear the word of God, believe it, and do it by faith. Father, please keep me from error. We pray that your word would be explained and taught faithfully in accordance with who you are and what you have intended. We pray, Father, that your authority would be made known in our church and that we would remember that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, Father, please help us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since the earliest days of the church... Christians have confessed that Jesus Christ is both fully God and truly man. 
This is the teaching of the scriptures, as we have seen through our series in John. And it's also the historic confession of the church. The Council of Chalcedon, for example, in 451, taught Christians to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. This teaching on the two natures of Christ is essential to the Christian faith. In order for sinners to be saved, Jesus Christ must be fully God and truly human. Even still, Christians down through history have tended to gravitate towards one side or the other when it comes to Jesus' person. Some Christians so emphasized Jesus' deity that they minimized his humanity. Jesus was God, these folks said, and since God can't dwell with sin, Jesus couldn't have been truly human. Still other people insisted so strongly on Jesus' humanity that his deity became almost unbelievable. Jesus was a man, these teachers claimed. And God just blessed the man Jesus with extraordinary things so that he appeared godlike, almost like a superhero. You can track the swings in the teaching of the church down through the ages Actually, it's more correct to say you can track the swings in the church's correction of that teaching down through the ages as the church sought the biblical balance in understanding the person of Christ. Now, these historical developments are interesting. At least they're interesting for some people. But there's a lesson in here that should instruct the church in our day, even in 2022. Because our minds struggle to grasp how Jesus can be both fully God and truly human, we can, even unintentionally, elevate one nature of Christ over the other. For evangelicals like us, we tend to do that with Jesus' divine nature. We gladly affirm that Jesus is fully God, but His human nature is the hard one for us to grasp. We struggle with seeing Christ as like us in every way yet without sin. Was he truly human, like you and me? Here's a good test. Can you imagine Jesus with a stomach bug? It's unsettling, isn't it? How does the Son of God get tired and take a nap? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. How does he ever get tired? We struggle to grasp and to balance the two natures of Christ, fully God and truly man. All of that brings us to our passage today, John chapter 11. This is one of the clearer places in the Gospels to see the person of Christ in biblical balance. Biblical balance. The presenting event of this passage is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We began this narrative last week and today is the climax. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. And yet... The focus of the passage is not really on Lazarus. Did you notice that by the end of the passage, John doesn't even call him by his name. He just calls him the dead man. We never hear Lazarus' report on what it was like to be dead four days. Don't you want to know what it's like to be dead four days? Maybe you don't. We never hear it. Because the passage is not really about Lazarus. Instead... 
John focuses the chapter on Jesus. John provides this incredible amount of detail that gives us the full biblical balance of Jesus' person. Again, just think about the passage as we read it just a moment ago. John describes an incredible amount of detail on Jesus' emotional state. Did you catch it when we read? He's disturbed. He's deeply troubled. He even weeps. Those are very human emotions. And Jesus experienced all of them. At the same time, John also makes clear that Jesus is absolutely God. Jesus creates life with his voice. Who else in the Bible creates life with his voice? Only God. And that's John's point. That's why the raising of Lazarus is the seventh and final sign in John's gospel. Here we see with remarkable clarity that Jesus Christ is fully God. So on the big picture level, before we get into any of the details, just appreciate the balance of John chapter 11. Jesus displays the full range of human emotions because he's truly human. And at the same time, in the same person, Jesus calls the dead to life because he is truly God. This is the biblical teaching on the person of Jesus Christ. This is the balance that we need. Perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Understand, friends, these are not academic considerations. What we are talking about today is essential for our salvation. If what we are preaching on today is not true, then none of us are saved. This is essential for our salvation. John gives us this clear teaching on the person of Christ so that we will understand more deeply the work of Christ on our behalf. Who Jesus is, fully God and truly man, leads directly to what Jesus accomplishes, reconciling God and man. How can God and man dwell together again? Because God and man came together in Jesus Christ. And therefore we are saved. We confess our belief in the person of Christ because we need the work of Christ in order to be saved. So that's how we're going to approach this passage today with an eye towards understanding and embracing that biblical balance on the person of Jesus Christ. Not surprisingly, we're going to have two points in the sermon today. I am the least creative pastor in America. Two points to today's message. The first point deals with Jesus' humanity. The second point is going to focus on his deity, all so that we can maintain the biblical balance on who Jesus is. That's where we're going, John chapter 11, two points on the person of Jesus. Let's start in verses 28 to 37 with truth number one. As man, as man, Jesus shares the experience of his people. As man, Jesus shares the experience of his people. Just a quick recap from last week's passage to establish the setting. Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, but instead of going to him immediately, Jesus waited two more days. There was a greater purpose at work, which is what Jesus said to Martha when he arrived. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, verse 25. And in light of that truth, Jesus asked Martha, Do you believe this? 
And Martha confessed her faith, verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. As we come to verse 28, Jesus begins to show this family whom he loves just what it means that he is the Christ. Martha tells her sister Mary that Jesus has come. As you might expect, the house is crowded with a bunch of mourners. And so Mary tries to quietly head out in order to meet Jesus in private. That hope for privacy is quickly dashed in verse 31. All the mourners follow her. They think she's going to the grave to grieve. But Mary's not going to the grave, at least not yet. She's going to see Jesus. And in verse 32, she falls at his feet. Notice Mary's words, verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You may remember this is exactly what Martha said to Jesus when she first met him. Mary repeats her sister's words. But whereas Martha followed that up with a statement of confidence in Jesus, Mary doesn't say anything else. She just says, if you had been here, then my brother wouldn't have died. Is Mary blaming Jesus? Does Mary lack the same confidence that her sister Martha has? I don't believe so. Rather, we ought to see Mary as overcome with grief. That's the image of verse 32. She falls down at his feet. I'll argue that's, that's not an expression of worship. She collapses in grief. She's overcome. And we understand why. Remember, the people in the Bible are real people. They're not characters in a movie. They're real people. We understand why Mary would collapse in grief. Death is irreversible. At least according to human power and to all of human history, people don't rise from the dead. Death is undefeated, as they say. There was hope while Lazarus lived, but now that hope is buried in a cold cave. Mary is overcome with that awful reality of death. Does that indicate that Mary fails to trust Jesus? Not exactly. To be sure, her faith is far from complete. Mary's faith is far from complete. There is much that Mary needs to learn about Jesus. And on some level, there is unbelief in her heart. Sadly, belief and unbelief are often commingled in our hearts, aren't they? But it's too much, it's too much, I'll argue, to charge Mary with blaming Jesus. She's not blaming Jesus, she's human. And when faced with death, what do humans do? They grieve, they weep, they collapse, because death is irreversible. The scene then shifts in verse 33. John described Mary's response, her very human emotions, Beginning in verse 33, however, he shifts to describe Jesus. And it's, it's not what you would expect. Look again, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That translation is too tame. That's too tame. For what John writes, Jesus is not merely troubled. He is not simply being sympathetic. To put it plainly, 
Jesus is angry. He's angry. Those two words in verse 33, deeply moved and greatly troubled, those two words often signify anger or indignation. In fact, if you have the ESV, the English Standard Version, you'll notice a footnote there in verse 33 next to deeply moved. You'll notice a footnote. And at the bottom of the page, the footnote reads indignation. Even the translators know that their translation is a bit too tame. He's not just being sympathetic. He's outraged. This is gut-level, intense, righteous anger on Jesus' part. He's outraged by what has happened. Of course, the question quickly becomes, outraged by what? Outraged by what? This is where the interpretation becomes very difficult. Is Jesus angered by the unbelief of those who are grieving Lazarus' death? Take Mary, for example. Based on her relationship to Jesus, should she display more faith in him that he will overcome the situation? Or take the crowd that's mourning. Just think about this crowd for a minute. They're going to openly question Jesus in verse 37. They're going to say, he, kept, he can heal the blind man. Can he not keep his friend alive? That, that's a question of unbelief from the crowd. So is Jesus angered by their unbelief? Is he outraged by unbelief? For my part, I, I do not think that interpretation is the right one though I say that with as much humility as I can muster as an interpreter of the Bible. This is a difficult point in John. I don't believe Jesus is angered by the unbelief. For my part, I take the reference in verse 33 to Mary's weeping to be the deciding factor. Jesus becomes angry when he sees Mary and the crowd weeping. So, put the pieces together. Why are they weeping? Why is Mary weeping? Because death is awful. That's why she's weeping. Death is the inescapable enemy of humanity. And friends, that's what draws Jesus' righteous indignation. He is outraged by the tyrannical hold that death has on humanity. He's outraged. This is important for understanding Jesus in this passage. Genesis teaches that death is the punishment for sin. Genesis chapter 3. Death is the punishment for sin, but death in and of itself is not good. Death is the distortion, even the perversion, of God's good purpose for His created realm. You could even say that every death is a reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. So, when Jesus sees these people who are made in the image of God, suffering under the tyranny of death, He is righteously angry. He is outraged that his father's goodness has been distorted. Can you imagine Jesus angry, friends? Can you picture Jesus with his eyes of fire and his jaw firmly set, indignant over how his father's world has been corrupted? Can you picture him that way? We ought to. Because it's here in the Bible. Our Lord, with all of the righteous perfection of the Son of God, was outraged that His Father's goodness has been marred by death and sin. 
we, we admit this is hard for us to envision. But that's because we tend to think of anger only in its sinful expression, which is the kind of anger that we are most familiar with, right? I know that's true in my life. I am angry most often because people are not following my purposes. I'm angry most often that people are not doing what I want them to do. That's sinful anger. And that kind of anger is always wrong because it makes us out to be God. But the Lord Jesus is different in verse 33. He is, his anger in verse 33, his outrage, is not in defiance of God's righteousness. Jesus' outrage is an expression of God's righteousness. He is angered by the tyranny of death precisely because he does honor God. In fact, you, it's not a stretch. It is not a stretch to say that part of our salvation, part of our salvation is bound up in the righteous indignation of Jesus. We are saved because Jesus is absolutely committed to upholding the glory of God. That's why you and I are saved. Because of his commitment to uphold the glory of God and the goodness of his Father. So the same commitment that compels him to be outraged by death is also the same commitment that compels him to say from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The same commitment in his heart drives both of those actions. And in his commitment, in that rock-solid, unswerving commitment to the glory of God, we are saved. It's not a stretch to say that our salvation is bound up in the righteous indignation of Jesus because in that righteous indignation we see his willingness to save us, even us. One more question before we move on because some of you are surely asking this question. Can we be righteously angry like Jesus? Can we be righteously angry like Jesus? The answer is yes, since the Apostle Paul commands Christians in Ephesians 4 to be angry and do not sin. So there must be a way to follow Jesus' example. That being said, we ought to proceed with considerable caution. You need to hear me for the next few paragraphs. Anger is deceptive because pride so easily worms its way into all of our motives. I can very easily be convinced that my cause is right when really my cause is just my cause. So we ought to be very careful before concluding that our anger is righteous. We ought to be very careful. What should our standard be then against which we can measure ourselves? What should our standard be against which we can say, is my anger righteous or not? How do I know? What's, what's our standard? There's a couple. Let me give them to you. Some questions that we ought to ask. Does your experience of anger cause you to act more like Christ or more like the world? Does your experience of anger cause you to act more like Christ or more like the world? If the answer is the world, then your anger is not righteous, but sinful. It doesn't matter how just you think your cause is. 
if your stand for that cause looks like a worldly response, then it's not righteous anger. It's just sin. Jesus' outrage was an expression of his commitment to God. If our anger does not express our commitment to God, then we're not being like Christ. We're just being like the world. Second question to help measure ourselves. Does your experience of anger cause you to examine yourself with more honesty and more humility? Does your experience of anger cause you to examine yourself with more honesty and more humility? Just consider this, this, this spiritual equation, this spiritual calculus here. I'm, I don't, I'm bad at math. I don't know why I said calculus. Just consider this for a second. God is angry towards sin. God's anger burns hot against sin. He hates sin. Who is the worst sinner that I know? Answer, myself. Myself. I am the worst sinner that I know. So, if I'm constantly angry at other sinners, but rarely examine myself as a sinner, then I'm not righteously angry. I'm just sinning. If my so-called righteous anger leads me to view others as worse than what they are and myself as better than what I am, I'm not honoring God. I'm just sinning. We, we need to hear this point, so please catch what I'm saying. If I am quick, if I am quick to condemn the evils of secularism and worldliness, but I'm slow to see my own sin, then I'm not righteously angry. I'm not standing for the truth. I'm just acting like the world. Before, before we proclaim our indignation against things that defy God, we also ought to spend a long time examining ourselves. If my experience of anger doesn't cause me to examine myself with more honesty and humility, then I'm not being righteously angry. I'm just a sinner who's too proud to recognize that a hatred of sin has to begin in my own heart. Why are we spending so much time on this? Because it's necessary. It's necessary to understand and apply this passage. To understand verse 33, you have to deal with Jesus' indignation. You have to deal with the fact that He's truly human. And then to apply verse 33, we need wisdom. We need wisdom. We need wisdom because... Our world, and sadly, our churches are so full of people who are angry and masqueraded as righteousness when it's not. That's a long way of saying we're spending time on this because it merits our very careful thinking. We want to understand Jesus and then we want to follow his example. We're talking about Jesus' humanity the picture of his humanity is not finished. There's another display of emotion from the Lord. And this leads us further in understanding why Jesus' humanity is essential. In verse 34, you see there in your copy of God's word, verse 34, Jesus asks to be shown the grave. They take him there. Then the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. 
Why is Jesus weeping? Simple answer, because Mary is weeping. Jesus expresses the same grief that Mary expresses because Jesus is fully human. You could even say that Jesus' grief is deeper than Mary's, in a sense, because Jesus knows full well what God the Father intended for his world. And so, fully human that he is, Jesus' righteous indignation is matched by heartfelt grief. The Lord of glory joins Mary in her sorrow. We could think on that for a while. Now, does Jesus know that he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Of course he does. But that doesn't prevent him from weeping. This is significant. Maybe some of you need to hear this today because you came to church with an unbiblical sense of guilt about the state of faith in your life. So, listen to me. The presence of grief does not equal the absence of faith in God. Jesus weeps and he knows what he's about to do. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and still he's moved by sorrow. The presence of grief does not equal the absence of faith in God. Jesus trusts his Father and still Jesus weeps. Grief is not opposed to God. Sometimes we grieve precisely because we do trust God and we long for him to make things right. So I want you to notice the fully orbed picture that John has given us of Jesus' humanity. So get the whole picture here. Jesus is righteously angry and he is grieved with heartfelt sorrow. Both of those. Jesus experiences the full range of human emotion. Now think again about the confession of the church. He is like us in every way yet without sin. And this makes him a strong defender and a sympathetic savior. He's both. He stands in the gap, indignant when the goodness of God is distorted. Friends, if you're uncomfortable with the picture of Jesus and John weeping with indignation at the grave of Lazarus, read Revelation 19 and you'll get another picture of the indignant Jesus who comes back with eyes of flaming fire to save his people and to crush his enemies. He's the defender of his people. He stands in the gap so that no one will take their lives and and he weeps at the graveside. Heartbroken when God's people experience suffering in this world. Outraged over that which harms his people and grieving with those people who are harmed. His humanity, in other words, Jesus' humanity is not simply a box on our doctrinal checklist. His humanity is essential to his ministry to us and for us. This is why, for example, we can have boldness to approach God in prayer. Prayer is an outrageous thing. You know that, right? To come into the presence of the living God... How do we have that boldness? Because there in the presence of the living God is one who is like us in every way, yet without sin. We can come into the presence of the Father because Jesus, the man, sharing in our humanity, is there interceding for us. Knowing what we are like, he bears our burdens before the Father. And he can defend us before the accusations of the evil one. 
His humanity is not just a, a checklist on the, on the theology exam. It's essential to his ministry for us. It's the reason why we can pray. Brothers and sisters, this, this is where the truth of Jesus' humanity can make a practical difference in your life as a Christian. It can make a difference in your prayers. Listen, when I struggle to pray, when I struggle to pray, which is almost every day, when I struggle to pray, what do I do? I think about the man, Jesus Christ. I think about the humanity of Jesus. I remember that right now in God's presence, there is one who is like me in every way, yet without sin. And then remembering my high priest who shares my humanity, I pray. And I pray even if that prayer is more lisping and stammering than I would like. Sometimes, sometimes all I pray is for Jesus, my defender, to intercede for me. That's all I pray. So, far from being esoteric or abstract, the doctrine of Jesus' humanity ministers to his people on a daily basis. It makes a tangible, practical difference in how you live as a Christian. And one way of that is prayer. And so tomorrow, you can apply the sermon in this way. Here's how you can apply the Word of God to your life tomorrow. When you wake up and you find that you're tired and you don't know whether or not you want to pray, you know you ought to, but you don't know if you want to, meditate upon the humanity of Christ. That He is like you in every way yet without sin. That He knows what it is like to be human. And He knows what it's like to be human in a way that ends in perfection and therefore your salvation. And then mindful of Jesus the man, you pray. As a man, Jesus shares the experience of his people. And one way that can help us is by helping renew our desire to pray. We're going to shift gears now to the other aspect of Jesus' person, his deity. We've reflected a good bit on his humanity, and that's necessary for us. But as we noted at the outset, this passage is striking for its biblical balance, Jesus' humanity and his deity, all in one series of verses. That's where we turn in verses 38 to 44, truth number two. As God, Jesus overcomes the, the enemy of his people. As God, Jesus overcomes the enemy of his people. One of the great glories of the gospel is that Jesus' work for us does not stop at sympathy. He's, he does not simply become like us in his incarnation. He becomes like us so that he can save us. And that saving work is anticipated in the rest of these verses. The crowd has questioned Jesus in verse 37. And Jesus himself is Deeply disturbed again by the tyranny of death, verse 38. Then things change, and dramatically so. Jesus orders the stone removed, verse 39. Roll the stone away. Martha objects because Lazarus has been in there for four days. She's afraid of it being an awkward moment. Again, we shouldn't read Martha too harshly, or at least I'll argue that we shouldn't. Does Martha lack faith? In Jesus? Well, yes, on some level. 
but the Lord is still in the process of teaching her. Jesus is not done with her, praise God, just like he's not done with you and me. He's still teaching her. And that becomes clear in verse 40. Remember back at the beginning of the chapter when Jesus said that Lazarus' illness was for the glory of God? Verse 4 that started the chapter. Jesus returns to that purpose now in verse 40. To the glory of God. Notice what he says. He's talking to Martha. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's a merciful correction from Jesus to Martha. He's not chiding her. Somehow suggesting that she should already know Jesus is going to raise her brother from the dead. Rather, Jesus is reminding Martha of something that we are very prone to forget. That sight comes by faith. That understanding comes by faith. That we walk by faith. I mean, yes, humanly speaking, it is crazy to open a tomb that has been sealed for four days. Martha cannot see the point of doing such a thing. But, but that's because Jesus is calling her to walk by faith and not by sight. Martha must trust him. And if she will trust him, she will see the glory of God. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But Martha will only see who Jesus is by faith. She won't see with physical eyes. She'll see with the eyes of faith. She'll see with the eyes of faith first, and then she'll see with her physical eyes. That's what Jesus is reminding Martha, that the way we see is by faith in Him. In fact, Jesus is calling everyone present to faith in Him. Notice Jesus' words, verses 41 and 42. And Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that You sent me. What Martha confessed in verse 27 is the very thing that the crowd needs to believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So, Jesus prays out loud, not because he needs to twist the Father's arm. The Father has already granted Jesus' request. Whatever the transaction has to happen between the Father and the Son in order to raise a person from the dead, Jesus is saying, that's already happened. We're good to go. But I'm going to pray out loud so that everyone around here will believe who I am. Again, the emphasis is on seeing by faith, understanding by faith. Jesus wants them all to see who He is. And who He is, friends, is God in the flesh. That's who He is. The stone is rolled away, and Jesus, with authority that only God can possess, calls the dead to life. Look at verse 43. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Some preacher a long time ago said that if Jesus had not used Lazarus' name, then all of the dead in, within the sound of his voice would have been raised up too. And we chuckle at that, but there's an element of truth to that quip, isn't there? Jesus' voice is absolutely powerful. Nothing can stop Jesus' word from accomplishing what he intends, not even death. 
When the Lord of glory calls a dead man out of the tomb, it does not matter that he's been in there four days. It doesn't matter that rigor mortis has set in. It doesn't matter that his blood is stone cold. None of that matters compared to the voice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When Jesus calls, the dead live. Understand, this is a work that only God can do. The connection here with the creation account is striking. In the beginning, there was nothing, but then God spoke and there was everything. God's voice created life. For four days in John 11, there was nothing but death. And then Jesus spoke and there was life. This is a work that only God can do. And that's who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He alone has the power to conquer death and the grave and bring his people to new life. Friends, in some way, in some way, this is our testimony, is it not? If you're a Christian, then what happened to Lazarus is a little parable of what happened to you. What was our spiritual state before we came to faith in Jesus Christ? It wasn't bad off. It wasn't kind of sick. It wasn't, you know, limping along. It was dead. Ephesians chapter 2. What was your spiritual state before you came to know Christ? You were dead in your sins. As the Apostle Paul says, we wanted nothing to do with God and we had no ability to respond to God. That's what sin's tyranny does in the human heart. That's what every person was like before Christ. We were dead in the tomb. And yet, and yet, here we are on the Lord's Day, worshiping God, confessing our faith in Christ, and serving one another in the bonds of love. All of that is a sign of spiritual life. So what happened? How did we go from death to life? How did you go from being dead in your sins to being alive in Christ Jesus? What accounts for the change? Answer, the voice of Jesus Christ. Through his word, applied by his spirit in your heart. Christ, in his infinite grace, called us out of death into life. His word, the gospel, reached into the tomb of our spiritually dead hearts. And by the power of his own life, he made us new. This is a reminder. You see, that what happened to Lazarus is a living parable of what has happened to each and every Christian. We live because Jesus, our Savior, stood outside the deadness of our own hearts and called us by name so that we would rise and trust him and live. This is a work that only God can do. This is a work that only God can do. Every Sunday when I stand up here and I read the Bible and then I say let's pray for the preaching of God's word, that's not a formality. We need God to speak through his word, by his spirit, so that we will live. This is a work that only God can do. And praise God, he has done that work in each of us who believe. Well, we, we reach the end of our time. I'm always a little sad when this part in John's gospel ends. But we can read it tomorrow again, right? I will probably read it tomorrow. There's more that we could say. As we finish our study, I want to 
I want to end by just putting the two halves of the passage together one more time. And just for a moment, I want us to soak in the glory that is Jesus Christ. Let's put the two halves together. The one who weeps in the face of death is also the one whose voice gives life to the dead. The one who is angry at the tyranny of death is also the one who breaks that tyranny with the power of his own life. Truly human, like us in every way, yet without sin. And fully God, of the same nature and power as the Father. And therefore, and therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. This is the biblical balance on the person of Jesus Christ. God and man together for us and for our salvation. I cannot read this chapter without thinking of what will happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus too will die in accordance with the will of God. God allowed Lazarus to die and God allows Jesus to die. Jesus will die in accordance with the Father's will. And Jesus, too, will rise again to new life. So it's hard to read John 11 without also thinking of John 20. And yet, the two are different when you compare them, aren't they? Lazarus is raised by someone else. He's raised through Jesus' word. Jesus is raised through the power of his own indestructible life. No one takes his life from him. He has the authority to lay it down and he has the authority to lay it, take it back up. Lazarus is raised by another. Jesus is raised by his own power. Lazarus is raised in a physical body exactly like the one he had before he died. Jesus, too, is raised in a physical body, but it's endowed with another degree of glory, isn't it? Jesus is raised with the glory of the new creation already coursing through his resurrected veins. Jesus is raised with a body that is fit for the presence of God. Jesus is raised with a body fit for the kingdom. And friends, that difference between Lazarus raised and Jesus raised, that difference is where where I want to end today. In the gospel, Jesus does not simply promise you resurrection from the dead. The promise of the gospel is not that you will rise like Lazarus. The, problem, the promise of the gospel is that you will rise like Jesus, glorified, flush with the new creation, coursing through your veins and fit for the kingdom of God. How can that happen? How can sinners like us join in the resurrection of the Son of God? How does that happen? It's just what Jesus told Martha right here in this text. You will join in that glory through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in me will not die, but will live. That's the call of John 11. I said it last week. We say it today. This chapter is fundamentally a call to trust in Jesus Christ. To confess your sin before God, your sin that deserves death, And then to believe that Jesus Christ, the crucified one, is the resurrection and the life. Even your resurrection and your life. So the only place to end today, the only place to end, is with the question that Jesus asks Martha. 
Do you believe this? Oh, how I pray that you do. By God's Spirit and through His Word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, our attempts to think your thoughts after you are feeble indeed. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, even our resurrection and our life? Father, we would ask you now very boldly because Christ is there in your presence interceding for us. We would ask you with all boldness that we can muster that you would please bear fruit in our hearts through your word today. That we would grow in faith. That we would be strengthened to believe. We pray, Father, even that if there are those among us who do not know Christ, that right now the Holy Spirit would do what only He can do. Apply the voice of Jesus in His Word so that the dead live. Father, we have no merit on our own to pray these kind of prayers. We have no business on our own being in Your presence. And yet we know, seated at your right hand is one like us in every way, yet without sin. He is our salvation. He is our merit. He is our righteousness. He is our high priest. He is our older brother. And we plead him on our behalf. And so where our prayers fall short, we pray that you would hear the prayer of Jesus for us. Our Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would intercede for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.